Do you want increased joy and happiness, less grumpiness and anxiety, and improved relationships? Well, according to my guest today, better sleep is the key to better everything. Christine Lawler is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a sleep specialist, and she's focusing on adult sleep today and sharing her tips and tricks for how to fall asleep and stay asleep, and when it's okay to prioritize other things over sleep, if you know what I mean. Did I mention that Christine is also a sex therapist? Stay tuned. Are you looking for real-life tried-and-true tips and tricks to help with all the nitty-gritty stuff of mom life? Well, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the Mom Force. Hello, Christine. Hi. My sister Erica is in the studio with me today. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. This is our third episode in a whole series all about sleep. And I am so excited to dig into the nitty gritty. But before we start, um, Christine, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and where you're calling from? Yeah. So I live in Las Vegas. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I've been doing therapy for 10 years. I have three daughters. I'm pregnant with my fourth daughter. Yay! That's exciting. It's really fun. I'm excited for my little girl gang. Um, And yeah, I'm super passionate about moms and mental health and well-being and marriage and realized through the process of being a therapist that sleep is like the biggest determining factor in our baseline of health and well-being whether it's physical health or mental health. And so that's why I've kind of dipped my toes in this space because I feel like for moms and for babies, the best thing that we can do to be well and to start learning and growing and being our best selves is to springboard off of the foundation of good sleep. Good sleep. Well, so you started as a therapist and then you kind of veered into that specialty because it is so crucial to our mental health. We were once working with a counselor for one of my with one of my children and she told us that 80% of the cases that come into her office are resolved when they get an appropriate amount of sleep. And I was actually quite shocked at how much sleep was <laughs> required required for and my child was 10 at the time. I think she mm-hmm. said something like 10 to 12 hours of sleep. Yeah, 10 to 12 hours is still what they need even at that age. And yeah, that's one of the most surprising things when I started um, getting my training to treat adult sleep issues to learn that 80% of people with a mental health diagnosis have underlying sleep issues. And we know this, we know that sleep impacts our mental well-being. Just like if we're hungry, we get grumpy. We know that we get tired and grumpy Sleep is one of those things that we just kind of undervalue and we wear our exhaustion as this badge of busyness or productivity or, you know, if you tell somebody, if you're at a party and you tell somebody like, man, I have so many troubles sleeping, I guarantee you'll have somebody chime in that wants to one up how bad their sleep is. (laughs) Well, you know what? We saw that exact conversation happen in our Mom Force Facebook group. We mentioned that we were going to be talking to you about this and so many people chiming in with a lot of the same issues that I'm dealing with. And you're right. We value productivity and like how much we can get done in a day. And I'm guilty of this. In fact, if I had one wish in life, it would probably be that I would never have to sleep because think of how much I could get done. Kids are in bed. That's your time. (laughs) Right. And I could just like get ahead of everything for once in my life. But sleep is the foundation. And we're so grateful that you're here to help us think through how we can do a better job at sleep. I've got seven kids and they're all older. My youngest is 12. My oldest is 24. And as I've watched them mature through childhood and adolescent and now young adulthood, I mean, they all have 
their own sleep issues. Still, even my 20-year-old is having a hard time sleeping. And I'm like an older woman of age. I've <laughs> I've gone through menopause. And with that came a whole host of other sleep issues. So it's not like something that is one and done. You get over it. You learn. It's like every age and stage, stage of life. there are new things to address. And really the solution is don't freak out about it. The more we freak out about it and get overwhelmed and stressed out, the more we set ourselves back. We don't need to over-catastrophize everything. One of my favorite sayings when I treat adult sleep issues is, if not tonight, then probably tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, then most assuredly the night after that. Meaning most of us don't string more than three really awful nights of sleep in a row. And so if I can just say, oh, I slept like garbage last night, but you know what? I bet tonight I'll sleep way better and just not get overwhelmed. Get out of your head. Because I will find myself panicking. Like, I'm like, oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. it's so late. I'm going to bed late. And then the brain starts going. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to go to sleep. I must go to sleep. And the more stress I get, the more, more unlikely I am to fall asleep. Exactly. Yes. With all of my adult insomnia clients, that is exactly the pattern that we talk about. So really the solution for that is just get out of bed if you're not sleeping and don't freak out about it because we do this association that really is unproductive where we start to tell ourselves, I don't sleep well. I have sleep issues. The bed is the place where I lie awake at night, planning my to-do list, stressing. The bed is the place where I'm not sleeping and I want to. And so the harder we try to go to sleep, And the more that we have that chatter in our minds that says, go to sleep, but I can't, and I'm going to be so stressed tomorrow, and I'm going to be so grumpy, and I'm the more that we do that, the more that we reinforce this new pattern and association that the bed is the place where I lie awake at night and stress instead of the bed is the place where I sleep. That's... That's kind of the problem that I have. And I don't know if it's necessarily stress that I think about. My mind just wanders. Yep. I just think about everything. And before you know it, I'm Googling on my phone, how tall is Jesus? What's the smallest dog? Uh, What if I don't like my, like, I just deep dive into, and that's probably, I probably just said the problem is on my phone. I have, I have my phone by me. Uh So when I can't sleep, I get it out and I'm in Facebook and before, yeah, like I said, before I know it, I'm Googling the world's tallest book stack. I don't know. So it's not stress. It's just it's the my phone. brain just isn't tired. Well, because it's, uh-huh. I think being on your phone, doesn't that trigger chemicals and hormones that make you stay awake? Yeah, it does. And one of the other things that I go back to a lot is if you think about our, just our basic brain composition as human beings, you know, think about 5,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, we didn't have lights and excitement and TV shows and all of this stuff to keep us awake. And so when the sun goes down, when that melatonin kicks in, like our nat- our body's natural hormone that says, let's wind down, let's go to bed. If we don't go to bed then and we push through it, then historically for the thousands or millions of years that human beings have been around, if it's late and it's dark and I'm tired and I'm not sleeping, I probably need some adrenaline or some something to keep me awake because maybe there's a lion in my camp, mm-hmm. right? And so our bodies, our brains are so evolved to say, if you're tired and you're not sleeping, then you probably need an extra jolt of chemicals that keep you awake. So I'll give you those. So then we're trying to wind down at night and we have these competing chemicals. We have all the chemicals that are saying, you're tired, let's go to bed. And then all of these chemicals that are saying, 
well, you didn't go to bed when it was the optimal time. So now I'm just going to flood you with some Mm -hmm. extra energy. And so if we've missed that optimal window, then really we need to just be out of bed because there's the other behavioral component that says, okay, I'm not tired. I'm not sleeping. I'm not going to be in bed so that the bed can stay the sacred space where we only sleep. Yeah. So for all the moms, I asked my friends too, like I get to talk to a sleep therapist. Not many people do. What should Uh I ask them? And so many of them said the stress, I can't turn my brain off. How do I, how do I fall asleep at night? So your suggestion is get out of bed. Is there a certain amount of time? Is there something we should be doing while we're out of bed? At what point do we think, okay, now it's time to get back into bed? Okay, so I have a whole adult sleep course that really dives into the nitty gritty. So if somebody's really struggling with sleep, I'd recommend that you just go get that. But the the quick answer for you is that we want to be falling asleep in about 15 to 30 minutes. We don't want to turn into a clock watcher because that's just going to add more stress. But I know sometimes I'm like cleaning up before I go to bed. I walk into my room to brush my teeth and take off my makeup. And my brain is like, bing, I'm wide awake now. And so don't go to bed. Don't lie down and go to bed until you feel pretty sure that you're going to fall asleep within 15 to 30 minutes. And it's easier said than done because probably a lot of people listening are like, well, if I did that, then I'd never get to bed before like 12 or one or two in the morning. And really that's just not true because we're just changing our behavioral associations with the bed and saying the bed is the place where I sleep. I'm going to go to bed only when I'm tired. It's not the place where you scroll Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Okay. Okay. Because Erica, I have to tell you, it was Romy, one of our podcast guests who suggested not keeping your phone in your bedroom, plugging it Uh in another space. And I have been doing that ever since that interview. And it has changed my life. I haven't yet convinced my husband to do the same, but it is, it's like this relief and my bedroom is now where I sleep. And maybe I'll look at a book because actually reading books puts me to sleep. Um, But all my electronic devices, I use my Apple watch as my alarm and it has made such a difference. Okay. Okay. I'm preaching to you. It seems, it seems, (laughs) it almost seems scary. It is, but it is at first because that's your routine and that's your attachment. But I promise you, you will feel such a difference and you'll actually look forward to going into your room because you're, you leave all that. I plug it in in the hallway outside of my bedroom door. And as soon as I step in my bedroom, it's like, it's a relief to not have to look Mm -hmm. at it. Yes. And it really just comes down to very basic behavioral psychology. So if you are familiar with that experiment with Pavlov's dogs, basically this researcher, he rang a bell and then he gave the dog some food and he rang a bell and he gave them some food and he rang a bell and he gave them some food. And after a couple of times, he rang a bell and the dogs came running and they were salivating because they heard the bell and they know that means food. And so we inadvertently create this association that bed awake, bed awake, bed, what's on Instagram? Let me scroll. Let me get lost. Let me get entertained. Oh, now I have Google. If I have a random question, I can find out a random (laughs) fun fact, right? And so we've started to associate our brain, even if it's harmless, like I know I definitely have gotten in that negative association of like, The bed is the place where I recap the day and think about my to-do list for tomorrow. So my mind's not necessarily racing. I'm not necessarily flooded by anxiety and I can't shut my mind off, 
but I'm just game planning and trying to be strategic and winding down, but it has turned the bed into the place where I, I don't know, calculate everything, mm-hmm. where I plan out, and I want the bed to be the place where my brain shuts off. The follow-up to that is some people have been taking medication to help mm-hmm. fall asleep, whether it's melatonin or a sleep pill. A Costco sleep aid. I will take half a Costco sleep aid on mm-hmm. an especially stressful day. I will admit this too, that when I have had, felt like I've had terrible sleep, you know what puts me to bed? A swig of NyQuil. I know that if I take some NyQuil, I will fall asleep immediately. Is there a a guiding principle as far as like melatonin or a sleep aid that you like to use? Here's my thing. I think it's fine to use that stuff as needed. It's fine to, you know, have those one-off instances. For somebody that uses a sleep aid all the time, like I'm not going to fight you on it, but it's basically like a diet pill right? Like we all want the shortcut. We want the result without having to do any work, without having to change our patterns. And a sleep aid kind of gives us that, except we're dependent on it. And so like you guys know as well as I do that if there was some magical pill on the market that didn't really have any side effects and you could still eat whatever you want and you don't have to exercise and you could still get a great six pack, like hi, we would all rush to the stores and be like, sweet, I don't have to do the work and I can get the results. And so, of course, the market for sleep aids is very appealing. My whole argument is like, yeah, if you want to take that, then you totally can. You will probably build some level of dependence on it just because, because you've been using that, you haven't had to do any good healthy habits for your sleep health. My, my kind of guiding theory with that is if you want to take a medication, fine. I'm not going to fight you on it, but they're actually really super easy, natural ways using scientifically supported and proven theories. This isn't just like put lavender oil on your feet and take some deep breaths. Like, and I'm not knocking lavender oil and taking deep breaths because that's great. But sometimes we have these chronic sleep issues that have developed and there's actually a real scientific solution that doesn't involve medication. Well, we do have a couple of specific questions that were yes. posted in our MomVore's Facebook group. And this one is from Brittany. Um, she says, help, I have serious trouble falling and staying asleep. The only mm-hmm. way I'm able to sleep is if I take a sleeping pill and I refuse to do that every night. So I need ideas of how to wind down so that I'm able to sleep at night. My problem is my mind won't shut off or shut up in order for me to be able to sleep. So can you give us other than the lavender oil, a couple of your ideas for falling asleep. And then this issue of not being able to stay asleep. We had so many people chime in and say, yes, that's my problem. I wake up at 3 a.m. every morning. I guess that's morning. Yeah, people who say, I have no problem falling asleep, but I wake up seven, eight, nine times, roll over, fall back asleep. Wake up, roll over, fall back asleep. So the classic definition of insomnia is if it takes you 30 or more minutes to fall asleep, you have trouble staying asleep, or you wake up too early and you can't go back to sleep. The biggest culprit that I walk people through and the sleep therapy that I do is identifying the mismatch between our sleep ability and our sleep opportunity. So for whatever reason, we've gotten in a pattern of garbage sleep and maybe our body only really knows how to sleep five or six hours a night. 
But because we want better sleep, we give ourselves still the same eight hours of opportunity. So our ability is less than our opportunity. And when that happens, our brain says, cool, I have eight hours to do five hours of sleep. I'm going to fill up the time with what I have allotted, right? And so what I do with clients is we chart out a week or two of what you are actually sleeping, and then we match your opportunity for that. So this is the hardest part, but the most effective part is to say, okay, let's get real. How much am I actually sleeping? One thing that I find a lot is that we are actually sleeping better than we give ourselves credit for. You know, we have those two or three bad nights a week and we say, I never sleep, which just perpetuates the negative belief of I have, I'm a person that has sleep issues. So we calculate how much we're actually sleeping. And then we say, okay, it's time to match up my opportunity with my ability. And I tell clients like, sorry, your new bedtime is 1230. And then it changes the problem. So now it's not, when am I going to fall asleep? It's, oh my gosh, this crazy lady told me I have to stay up until 1230. How on earth am I going to stay awake? I'm so tired. Mm -hmm. And so just by having a brand new problem, it gets you out of that cycle. And then your body relearns how to fall asleep as soon as your head hits the pillow and stay asleep the whole night because now it's got this scarcity thing. So what if you're falling, if you can fall asleep at 1230, but your kids need to get up at 630? And you got to mm-hmm. get up with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think then that, you're not getting the eight hours, right? Is that is that what an adult needs? And um, is it does it differ too? Like I, I yes. feel like I know people who really function great on such little sleep, and I wonder how on I earth feel do like they, they do that? fake it. They're bragging. Are they and faking it, or is caffeine? there really a difference in what people actually need? There really is a difference in what people's individual optimum sleep looks like. To go back to your question, this is not the permanent solution. This is how we get to where we need to go. So we do the sleep restriction so that your body learns how to fall asleep and stay asleep. And then we slowly expand by 15 minutes a night to build you back up to wherever you, wherever your optimal sleep is. So I've had some clients where we start off with sleep restriction that's maybe five or six hours a night, and then we build them back up and they're sleeping seven and a half hours a night, super great. We go to seven hours and 45 minutes. It's okay. We try for eight hours. Everything falls apart again. So we say, okay, it looks like seven and a half hours is where we found your optimal. When you started giving yourself eight hours, things fell apart a little bit. That's interesting. I love that there is an adult sleep expert. I was so blown away to hear that there were sleep Sleep experts for babies. But now that I know that there's one for an adult, like... I need your course. (laughs) Yes, yes, I will give it to you. Really quickly, do you have any suggestions on gadgets or gear? Weighted blankets, is there a favorite alarm clock or a special kind of mattress or any other things that we should be thinking about or sound machine when we're thinking about trying to get the sleep that we need? So I do love all of the Marpok sound machine products. Okay, Um, Those are my favorite. I think white noise is great. The best thing that I would say about the bed is make sure that you have a good quality mattress. Make sure that you have sheets and bedding that don't get too hot. Yes. Have a fan on in your room. Temperature matters a lot. So the optimal room sleeping temperature is like 68 to 72 degrees because we want the room to be cool enough that we can snuggle up and be nice and warm and cozy inside of our blankets. If we're too hot, it's going to mess up our sleep. 
Yep. This made me think of another question that came into the Facebook group. And I don't know if you address this in any of your courses, but so many people have stressful dreams. I love my dreams. They normally aren't very stressful. They're very exotic and exciting. Thrilling and (laughs) no one ever wants to hear about them, but I used to (laughs) just lay in bed wanting to replay it all in my head. But we had quite a few people who have stressful dreams. And I know that's an issue with children too, night terrors. What advice do you have for people that are struggling with that? Yeah. So I would say if you wake up from a stressful dream and you have that adrenaline surge and you're not going back to bed, that's again, another place where I would say, get up, get out of bed, change your scenery and remind yourself. My favorite kind of grounding statement is I am here. I am now I am safe. So, you know, whatever that was in my dream. Now I am safe. Those positive affirmations. That will work for the kids too. Yes. Mm -hmm. I like that. And even doing like an environment scan or a body scan saying like, my feet are hanging out of the bottom of my sheets and I can feel my pajamas hitting on my shins right here. Just kind of running through your body or running through your environment. Like I know that my sheets are gray and my comforter is cream because now your mind is occupied wondering why you have so many decorative pillows and why it takes you so long to make your bed. Like instead of, and the house burns down and then da 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 So that can help you and... come out of a bad dream. But is there a way to prevent bad dreams? Or is, is that just, my what dad, triggers that? My dad once told me he gets very vivid dreams after he's had a big meal before bed. Okay. And there was mm-hmm. actually a Scottish saying that he used to say, uh, the dog slept on the cellar door last night. Oh, I'll have yeah. to look it up. Do you remember him <laughs> I remember saying that? I remember what that means, but it's um, kind of spooky. But that whenever he had one of those dreams, he had a huge meal or had a late meal. Is there any correlation? And people who don't have dreams, my husband never remembers his dreams. Are they having them, just not remembering them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's kind of a thought that if you remember your dream, it's because you came back into conscious awareness while you were having the dream. And so a lot of us, like in our deep sleep state, if we're not getting brought out of it, then we don't remember what the dream was. Obviously, I'm biased because I am a therapist. I would generally think that if somebody's having a lot of bad dreams, especially if they're on recurring themes, that kind of makes me think that maybe your mind is trying to tell you something. Either you have some anxieties that are in the background and your mind, because our minds are extraordinarily powerful and they will play out and process And so if, yeah, if somebody's struggling with bad dreams and anxious dreams a lot, I would say go to therapy. Maybe need therapy. Yeah. I have so many questions for you. Let's move into partner sleep. I want to move into this idea of partner sleep because there's one thing to like get yourself in the zone and personally prepared, but so many of us are sharing a bed with somebody Mm -hmm. who has their own issues. Yep. (laughs) Maybe it's snoring. Maybe it's sleep apnea. Maybe they're... They're a restless sleeper. (laughs) Maybe they hog all the covers. Uh Um, For me, the biggest issue when it comes to partner sleep doesn't really have to do with sleep. (laughs) It's what you might be doing before sleep or you (laughs) wish you were doing before sleep. Just say the word. Um, I love that you are so shy saying the word. There's a man in the room. We have have an audio tech now in here. Let's talk about sex. Is that what you're doing? Sex. Because especially for me, now that my kids are all older and they stay up way later and it's really hard to like, Think about doing that when your kids are all awake, wandering around the house. Um, What kind of counsel do you have about that trade-off? Because oftentimes it is a trade-off of sex or sleep. And for moms with a lot of young kids, it's so physically and emotionally taxing all day long doing that job that it's hard to think about giving of yourself 
at that Mm -hmm. time as well. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you work with a lot of clients about that. Yes, I do. Yeah. Like I said, I'm a marriage and family therapist. I do a lot of sex therapy in my practice. So I could talk all day okay, about we well, I could because I this we're could be a whole other episode. Another episode about but it. we did yes. get a couple of questions specifically about this, and I was wondering if you could answer them. This is the first one. It says, "Okay, this is weird, but I need some womanly advice about sex. Why does why do we all feel weird about this? We need to talk about sex more." Okay, Let's after <laughs> after my last baby, my drive is all but gone. I'm not sleeping. I'm exhausted, and then it takes a lot of work for me to even get there. If you know what I mean. What can I be doing to help rev my engine again? Mm -hmm. Okay, so my quick answer for this is just recognizing that even in the literature, when we're talking about the sexual response cycle, we have desire and arousal, heightening, climax, and resolution. So the desire, that like, ooh, my body tells me that I'm in the mood, that sounds like a good idea. They have found that for women after 30, that have been married for more than two years, they've changed the word desire to willingness because they say, we don't exactly know why, but women's desire just changes. And if desire is the only thing that gets us into bed and into sexual activity, then we set ourselves up for miscommunications and pain and misunderstanding and not having sex. The willingness. I I don't want to, but... I'm willing. I, I love that. Because let's be honest, I never regret it afterwards. No. Like, oh, wow. We should do, do that, that more often. often. <laughs> exactly. It's usually wives that struggle with the desire and the willingness. If we can say, okay, stop thinking about desire and husbands don't feel ashamed or embarrassed or unloved if your wife doesn't feel desire, her body chemistry has just shifted. But if she's willing, then... The other change that they've made in the research is, so there are two different ideas. One, maybe we just say willingness instead of desire, or two, maybe it's arousal and then desire. Maybe, maybe once we're aroused, then we're more in the mood. And so I tell wives, like, if you feel willing, if your environment is good and you feel loved and you feel safe, like, I don't think anybody should ever feel pressured to have sex ever, even in marriage. But if you feel willing, then talk to your partner and say like, hey, I don't feel super in the mood. But I'm open to the idea. (laughs) I mean- I'm open to the idea. Like, I'll- I'll give it a go. (laughs) Yes, but like, let's give you a couple minutes to see if you can rev up my engine a little bit, right? But if we can have good open communication to say, hey, I'm usually willing. I'm usually not in a desire place, but here are the tricks that can turn on my desire. Then, you know, then you can have a little bit more space to say, like, I'll give you some time to see if you can keep things up. So we had one mom in our Facebook group say that it has been six months since they've Mm -hmm. had sex. She says, is it normal? to not have sex for six months. And I think it actually happens, I think, to quite a few couples. Just you get out of the habit of the communication. And sometimes you end up sleeping in different beds because you've got this kid that won't stay in their bed and the baby's in that room. And then all of a sudden, it feels like your roommates. And this woman actually was asking, is this a normal season of married life as a mom of young children? Or do I need to start thinking about getting out? Because life is too short to be feeling unsatisfied, empty, and generally depressed. And bless her. I know. And so I'm wondering what counsel would you give? Yeah. So obviously there's so many complex factors here. It sounds like there's more going on than just sex, 
But I will say it's that it's all a related, lot of time, though. It is. If we're going to talk about related. willingness and desire, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Again, if you think about our bodies and how we are wired as evolutionary beings, even though it's 2020 and we have birth control, like women inside of our bodies, we know that sex leads to babies, which is historically very life threatening. And it's also a lifelong emotional and physical commitment. And so women have this subconscious process that says, I'm about to risk my life for this dude. (laughs) Does he love me enough? Is he going to be here for me? Is he going to help me survive this? And so women do this immediate subconscious scan of how safe and loved do I feel in the relationship? Do I want to have sex? So women need to feel loved and secure and connected before sex feels like a viable, safe option. The problem is that men feel loved and connected through sex because, again, if you think about that evolutionary perspective, flip-flops, like, gosh, if she wants, if she's willing to have sex with me, then she must really love me, right? And so men feel loved and connected through sex. Women need to feel loved and connected before they want to have sex. And so a lot of times I see in my couples counseling that we just get in this negative cycle where distance is created, where again, subconsciously we do this thing, you're not meeting my needs, so I don't want to meet your needs. So then men are grumpier, they're less responsive, they're more snippy. And then women are like, screw you. Like you've been a jerk all day and now you want to jump into bed or like, hey, we have these four children that you don't actually help out that much with. Am I going to risk having another baby with you? No. Even again, even if logically we know like we're not going to have a baby. And so I think with the couples that I work with, I always want to dig into what else is going on. This isn't just sex, but also a lot of times just reigniting that cycle into, you know, I've heard from so many wives, like we started having sex again and he was so much nicer and kinder and more responsive. And he's the kind, loving man that I always wanted to be with. And now he meets my needs. And so sometimes we just have to reignite that cycle. Frequency is a tricky one because everybody's frequency is going to be a little different, but the science tells us that husbands and wives who are both sexually satisfied that have been married for longer than two years on average have sex one to three times a week. Now that's a pretty big range because three times a week is almost every other day and once a week is once a week. Um, So I generally tell my couples aim for once a week anything less than once every two weeks and you run the risk of just starting to feel disconnected. And so aim for once a week, aim to at a minimum, aim for once every two weeks. But if you find yourself in a six month slump, how do you get out of that? Is the answer just like Go see Christine. humbling yourself and say, <laughs> all right, fine, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do it because you got to give it up to get what you want or... There's going to be a better answer, right? Because Yes. I think it's so much more complex than that because, again, like women should never have sex if they feel feel pressured to do it, if they feel icky about it, if the sex is going to lead to resentment. And so it's so important to know where your mind is at when you're jumping into bed because if you're getting into bed feeling like, kind of feeling like, screw you. I hate that I have to have sex with you so that you'll be nice to me. That makes me resent you. Then it's going to make your desire and your willingness a whole lot less in the future. I would think you would go into it thinking the long game, the long-term game. 
Like, mm-hmm. I may not be wanting to do this right now, and I'm annoyed, but I know where I want to get, and this might help me get there. Well, I she's would- honestly wondering, should I get out? Like, is it even worth staying? And I would say, before you really explore that option, be willing to— Put in the work. If you value that marriage enough, it's it's worth it. Sorry, can I say one thing real fast, though? Sex is such a heated topic, and, like— from three sentences of what a woman asked in a Facebook forum. Like, this is where my marriage counselor comes in and say, it's like, we can't do a blanket statement about any of this. Before I'll even give her an answer about what she should do about her sex life, I would want to know more about what's going on in that relationship. So for anybody that's hearing this, that's triggered, like, the magic solution isn't just get over your pride and go have sex because some relationships are toxic and unhealthy and having sex with a partner that's toxic and unhealthy is the wrong answer. That is such that's a good point. Great advice. I, I sometimes know. forget and I don't look out <laughs> outside of, of your own lens. relationship. I know. I know. Thank we you, need Christine. a whole month series on sex. Okay. Let's I do think. it. We need to do it. Um, well, I'm going to tr- switch gears for half we a gotta, second. We got to wrap this up. Though. I know. Half a second. You're, you're sleeping with a partner. At what point does their sleep interrupt your sleep? Do you ever suggest separate bed sleeping? Or separate sheets. There was a whole thread about people that have separate blankets and sheets. Mm-hmm. There's going to be this balance, right? Of like optimal sleep versus what's best for the relationship. So I would say figure out optimal sleep conditions while you're still in the same room. But I would say if you don't go to bed at the same time, that's fine. Yeah. Like let that be okay that one partner is going to stay up later than another and it's okay. Okay. But then how do you get the sex in? That's my question. <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> In the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening before you go to bed. (laughs) But okay, we have other issues to work out. Christine, you're amazing. So much great advice. Where can people go to find more of your work and your courses and all the things that you mentioned? Yeah, so find me on Instagram at the peaceful sleeper. So at the.peaceful.sleeper or my website is thepeacefulsleeper.com. That's where you can find all of my baby and toddler sleep stuff, also my adult sleep stuff. If you're interested in some of the counseling things that I was talking about, then my therapy website is christinemahler.com. Well, my one takeaway is I'm getting rid of my phone in my room so that I can have better sleep. I'm proud of you. (laughs) I love that. All right, Christine, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and let us know what you think. Also, check out the show notes for links to the things we talked about and a special chat books discount code.